Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now let's fire up the time machine. A few miles from Boston in Massachusetts, there's a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp or morass. On one side of this inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kid the Pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a boat secretly, and at night, to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship. But this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kid never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly after seized at Boston sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. Excerpt from The Devil and Tom Walker by Washington Irving Hey there, it's Karen here. Anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that goes back in time to examine society through the lens of the work we do as human beings, over time and across cultures. On today's episode, our last of this season, we're addressing an age-old question, privateer or pirate? Okay, maybe not exactly age-old, but it's a question I didn't even know to ask until I spoke with maritime archaeologist Neil Dobson whose work spans decades of deep water shipwreck exploration and recovery. In all his years of studying ships and their legendary captains, none has captured Neil's imagination and his heart quite so much as that of the famous Captain William Kidd, who was a privateer wrongly convicted as a pirate, and as Washington Irving writes in our opening passage, hanged for his crimes. Now, if you're wondering what the heck a privateer is, how one could be confused with a pirate, and above all, why that would be such a terrible thing in the eyes of the law, well, you've come to the right time machine. So, hoist the sails. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of beer? Well, that's what Neil told me, anyway. Tally ho! 
Neil is a deep water marine archaeologist and salvage assistant with nearly 50 years of experience in the marine and offshore industries. He's worked on scores of shipwreck sites and supervised archaeological and salvage work on high-profile projects throughout the world's oceans. His exploration and recovery work on shipwrecks has attracted global attention, featuring in major newspaper and magazine articles and TV documentaries on National Geographic, History Channel, PBS, and BBC. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. So give us the 101. Where and when in the world are we going to be talking about? And what else might have been going on in the world at large at the time that, that we need to know about? Well, I'm going to take you on a seafaring journey in the 17th and 18th centuries in the North Atlantic, Indian Ocean, and the large oceans of the world. Very volatile time, 17th and 18th century. Lots of wars going on, the usual English against the French, the French against the English, the Spanish are joined in, and various other countries. So I'm going to look at privateers and how they were involved in all these wars and troubles between governments and countries, and what was it like to be on a, a ship, a privateer, in the 17th and 18th century? Okay, first, first things first. What was a privateer? Well, a privateer. Many a privateer would like to say that he's not a pirate, and many pirates would say that there were privateers to try and get off uh, not being a bad and nasty pirate. So basically, a privateer is, in some ways, a licensed pirate. Governments and large trading companies would hire good sea captains and their vessels and say to them, look, we're having a war with France at the moment. Um, what I'd like you to do is you and your crew take the ship out and just attack any French ship that you see. Um, take the goods, take the ship if you want, take some of the crew if you want. And then when we bring all the, the cargo back and the valuables, um, you'll get some money and you'll be able to share it with your crew. And then you can go back out again and attack more shipping. So really... They were sort of mercenaries in a, in a way. Um, very exciting life. I would love to have been, and I'm sure I would have been a privateer in the <laughs> 17th uh, century. And if you imagine in the 17th and 18th century that any young man thinking about a career at sea, now do you want to be in the merchant service where I was in the merchant service where... Pressure is on to get the ship from A to B as fast as possible and ensure that all the cargoes and what you're carrying gets there on time so that the owners can get the best price for the, for the trade goods. Or do you want to be in the military service where you're not going to get treated too greatly, um, you've got to wear a uniform and you've got to kill people? Or do you choose the romantic journey of being a privateer, which is... Kind of combination of the lot. You get to fight other people. Um, you get to to take their cargoes. You get more money. You might have a big adventure on the way. And I'm sure if you're sitting in a local alehouse, it's more interesting to tell people that you're a privateer than uh, somebody that was in the Royal Navy. Oh, yeah. For a lot of governments, um, if your country goes to war with another country and, and you don't have 
a military navy in place, the quickest way to get a, a, a military navy is to hire a privateer. Get a good captain, they get their own ship. Now, the captain is responsible for that ship. The government doesn't give them weapons, uh, equipment or anything. It's a purely, right, Captain Neil, we're going to hire you because you're, you're a bit of a lad. Um, I believe you've got a good crew and a fine ship and you can go out and chase the French or the Spanish and take what they want. Um, and when you bring it back, uh, we'll reward you greatly. But what we will do is we'll give you a letter of mark. And this was what distinguished the privateers from the pirates. Because if you have a letter of mark, that's effectively a very um, ornate document signed by sometimes the king uh, or the government listing your name saying that you and your ship and your crew are free to attack the enemy and bring it back and we won't arrest you or class you as a pirate and off you go you can do this so you had a sort of safe passage to be a pirate really can you tell us a little bit about what it would have looked like on deck on a daily basis on one of these privateer ships the captain would be engaged to do this uh, mission of uh, privateering he would make sure he had his letter of mark because if he got stopped by another nation saying you're a pirate and you're going no i'm not i'm a privateer you've got your get out of jail free card then so he would be spending time getting his ship readied for sea, um, selecting the crew. Now, normally on these ships, if you're looking at a ship, maybe a 30 or a 40-gun ship, that's 20 down, you know, 15 or 20 cannon down each side, um, three, two or three masted. It had to be a fast ship. And obviously, um, with it being a privateer, it had to be adapted unlike a merchant ship, so that it could swiftly and efficiently um, attack and take other ships. So much the time your day in port would be busied during daylight hours, um, getting the ship ready, making sure the sails are okay, the rigging's fine, the hull's good, um, loading all the water, uh, beer, and provisions that you would need for a voyage because you could be out for a long period of time. You go now, you don't know where these ships are, you know, roughly the area that they're operating in, but um, you've got to head out there first and then uh, start picking off your targets. So normally they, they have large crews as well. Um, when you think on a merchant ship, they might have 40, 50 people because all they want to do is sail the ship from A to B as fast as they can. When you've got a privateer, you're looking at about 150 people. Oh, wow. Why so many more? Yeah, so that's a lot. Now, the reason they have a lot is because the ship has to be completely self-sufficient. If you're a privateer and off you go into the North Atlantic and you're heading down to the Indian Ocean area or down to the Caribbean, a lot of the ports didn't like privateers coming in. They thought, oh, no, this is going to be trouble. So they had to be self-sufficient. They had to have enough people on board to, to do all the work. Um, they had to have enough supplies so that they could do their own repairs and have extra rope and extra sail and food. And also, they've got a fight. They've got to be able to take a whole ship, take its cargo off, possibly put 
people on that ship and sail that ship back to their country so that it could be sold, uh, the cargo sold, the men usually go home. Sometimes the men would join the privateers because they might think, wait a minute here, I've got a chance of making more money doing the same kind of work. And like any ship, there'll be many of the crew might not like everybody would, would get on. It might be that the skipper himself, the captain, is well known as being a bit of a disciplinarian, um, <clears throat> being a bit tough on the men. So you'd have all that sorted. You'd line up all your men. You'd have a chat with them, tell them how it is, how it works on the ship. And then you would set sail on this amazing, great adventure. It's like its own little sailing state. <laughs> Maybe you come out of sail out of New York and you're heading out and you're thinking, wow, where are we going? Heading south to warmer waters, um, possibly heading over to Madeira. Once you get to Madeira, you might go in there and, and load up with more water. Um, and that could take a couple of days because if you think there's 150 people on board, that's quite a lot of water you need. When you mentioned beer too. Oh, yeah. Probably a lot of beer as well. Well, you're looking at a gallon a day per man. Of beer or water? Beer, because the water was bad. And you know that beer has been uh, boiled in its process. So alcohol is far better beverage in this. So these guys out there drinking a gallon a day, I'd be suffering by the weekend, but they were drinking <laughs> that and possibly more every a day. A little liquid courage to overcome those ships. Yeah, I think at some point it would have been quite merry. Um, the idea that when pirates and privateers came ashore, they were rip-roaring, having fun and getting drunk. I think probably they were more drunk at sea than they were sure. Yeah. Well, tell me about these voyages. Did they generally have a specific destination in mind or was it literally like, well, where do you feel like going, Joe? Well, you know, the, the, the weather looks good that direction. Let's go there. I mean, how, how did that how did that work? For a lot, the, the captain and his officers would be given the mission from the government or the trading company or whoever was sponsoring the privateer adventure. And they would be told, right, we want you to sail down the uh, west coast of Africa and head to Madeira, go down to Africa and attack any French or Spanish ships that you come across. So the captains in that, and you'd be a very experienced captain and his officers, um, would get the charts out. And here again in the 17th century, charts weren't that great. The navigational information wasn't as available as today when you've got admiralty charts and uh, it's all it's all good. They'd be dependent a lot on experience and logbooks or wagoners, as they're called, um, that would have information from other navigators and captains as to the routes that they sailed, uh, the courses that they set, you know, like steer one, three, five degrees for five days and then alter course. And then, of course, it's a sailing vessel, so you've got to uh, work with the wind as well. So they'd have all this. I mean, the, the, the biggest problem in those days was navigation. There was a lot of dead reckoning going on. There'd be a lot of looking at the stars and going this way. Um, there'd be a lot of um, 
what did I do on a previous trip, taking the notes that you went that way. I mean, you've no radios, you've no other communications. You're out on your own, and it's on the knowledge of your navigators, uh, your captain. They would be sitting, checking charts. They might be redrawing charts. Whenever they went to uh, bits of land that they weren't sure of, they would make sketches and then improve their own charts and build up these information. So obviously in, in those days, having any navigational in information that you could take from another ship is really the gold. And you imagine 150 people on a ship that's maybe only 100 foot long. Sounds crowded. It's crowded. The captain's good. He's got a, a, a nice little accommodation at the stern of the vessel. He'll have his in some cases, a hammock there. In other cases, you might have a cot, which is just a big wooden box um, that's suspended by a rope that you can get in so that you can get a good sleep. Or they would just have a, a, a better quality hammock than all the others. Everybody else would have to take their bed down during the day um, and put it on a hook. And then when you finished your watch, which might be a four-hour watch, four hours on, eight hours off, doing other things, you would have to pick up your bed, sling your hook, uh, go to sleep, and when, when you get off the watch, hang up your hammock so the other people could get in. So it was kind of a tough day. The, the captain's day, once he's out at sea and he starts to get into unfamiliar waters, um, is going to be start looking about, let's keep a lookout for these other ships. He would have to spend a lot of time drilling the crew, I mean, their game is to attack other ships and not damage them or get or damage themselves. Yeah, that's kind of a tricky game to draw yeah. that line. Well, it would be very important that everybody would be told, even when they had uh, young boys on board the ship, um, powder monkeys, etc., and helpers, um, that everybody's weapons, their swords, their cutlasses would have to be... Um, sharp, their pistols would have to work, they'd have to practice running out the cannon drills, they'd practice the techniques um, that they would um, use to take the ships. And on a ship, you need to think about someone that's got to uh, make food, and you've got to do all that daily work and repairs and everything. So it would be busy, it'd be quite a bustle. Sounds a like a huge um, operation. And was the captain, you know, at the top of this hierarchy in kind of hands-on practical terms as well? Or did he have somebody he could delegate to sort of oh, manage yeah. a lot of this, you know, not actually strictly involved, involving the ship and the sailing itself? No, captain very much, uh, like a lot of captains today, um, would be in his cabin, poring over the charts, um, obviously, he would be speaking to his officers and the sailing master who would be responsible for how the ship is sailing, what, what uh, sails to set, um, what ropes to pull in, what the, the crew would have to do. And then he would have his navigators, officers on the watches, uh, making sure that the person steering the ship uh, was on the right course and checking the compass. Compasses in those days were like gold, uh, 17th century, very important instrument, the compass. Um, steering was difficult. It wasn't the classic thing that people think, a uh, boldly colored dressed pirate 
captain or a privateer with a huge hat with giant feathers out of it and all this. No, oh, I like those hats. I, what did I they really well, wear? What I, did they really wear? <laughs> they wore practical <laughs> leather shoes at sea, leather boots, um, dark clothing because it, it there was no washing machine. Um, you'd have to tie in a rope and tow it behind the ship for a while. A lot of these ships in the 17th century would have had what we call a whip staff, which if you imagine a tiller on a boat, and a tiller by which means you push it away from you or pull it towards you and the ship will go left or right, imagine a giant one of them on a ship. Now, obviously, you, it's there's engineering that comes from the tiller up to the deck and there's a big, large vertical pole that whoever's on steering the ship pushes that pole left or right, looking at the compass, trying to sail a steady course. Now, you would be lucky um, in those days that you could steer a course 30 degrees either side. So if you had to steer a course of two, four zero degrees, you'd be lucky if you could actually steer 210 or 270. There was a big arc on it. They had to try and work out how, how far had they actually travelled. They'd have to use the ship's log. So they would throw something over the side, a log, um, or a rope, and work out how many knots it goes out and try and estimate the distance that they'd covered. They would then take sightings of sun and the stars and try and fix their latitude uh, and maybe a, a bit of dead reckoning, see uh, where they were. So captain would appear up in the bridge in the morning after breakfast. He would sit for a while and then he would go out and deck and have a look around, make sure everybody's doing everything else. And if there's any discipline issues to deal with or other ship issues that need the captain's blessing, he would do that. More or less, he'd be in his cabin, um, probably getting stuck into uh, good wines, brandies and spirits and tobacco. <laughs> well, if he ran out of his gallon of beer for the day, what, what else would the man do? He would have a steward that would look after him, that would bring his food in. He would probably, uh, in the evening, sit with the officers that weren't on watch, and they would all eat there, and they would all be sitting discussing um, voyages, past stories, how did you attack this ship? What should we do to this? Have we got a good crew? Uh, which are the ones that we should get rid of next trip? Or how about fighting? Are we up to this? To it? Let's go and practice some technique. So it's a busy, busy day, but exciting because you never knew, are we going to meet a ship today? Will, will we be attacking a ship today? So obviously, the ship's captain would know roughly where the main shipping lanes were and where you might expect to see the enemy ships. And of course, you'd have to have good lookouts with spy glasses to keep an eye and see a flag. And if they did in the distance see a vessel, they would try and determine by the sail pattern and the mass what type of vessel it was. Hopefully, it wasn't a military vessel, because <laughs> that was that's bad news. <laughs> uh, they probably were better at fighting than the privateer's crew, no, no matter how much they drilled. You don't want to attack a military vessel um, unless you know that you've got intel that there's a lot of good cargo on board that vessel that could be uh, make you a profit. 
Well, and would would the military vessel, if it were um, an opponent, be likely to attack the privateer ship? Well, they would be looking to see what the other ship was, and privateers were very uh, wily. It, it's not unusual that a privateer seeing another ship and seeing that it's French, that the privateer would put up a French flag. <laughs> so oh, <they're- laughs> did they have like a whole bunch of fake passports in the in the oh, captain's yeah, yeah. office? I love it. That's so <laughs> sneaky. <Nothing changes. laughs> I want to go hang out with the privateer. So we 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 did we did an episode on um, clipper ship captain and crew, yeah. um, which was a very exciting job as well, but. It sounded quite miserable and unrelentingly hard. It sounds like these privateers probably had had plenty of opportunity to at, at least try to have a jolly old time. Well, they did. I mean, you never knew if that voyage to sea was going to be your last trip. Um, you know, I mean, people's life expectancy at sea, then you, you might get past your 40s if you hadn't fallen over the side, had some strange disease, lost a limb, I would rather be on a privateer than a merchant ship because the regulations and the way that privateers and the crew were treated um, was pretty good, actually. Um, You got compensated if you lost an arm or a leg or an arm and a leg. So they looked after the crew. Um, They were strict on what you could do. Some captains didn't like you to gamble. Gambling was very popular on on uh, all ships, uh, card games, dice games, etc. Um, so some captains allowed it, some some didn't. Um, there was very strict rules on that you don't murder any of your shipmates, that you don't steal from any of your shipmates, and there was a very good code of conduct and a social system that looked after everybody. It had been a good life. One thing that was very interesting is that they loved music. And on one privateer, it was this captain stated that one day a week the musicians would have a day off. <laughs> because, oh. yeah. So when the, all these people, 150 people on a ship, uh, were all out in deck doing, all, doing what they were doing and practicing, et cetera, they would often say, come on, give us a tune, give us a song, you know, just to keep the spirits up. So they were having a jolly time. And if you think that they were getting a gallon of beer all the time, it's it's a good uh, good party atmosphere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and you sketch such a great image of the kind of social order on board these ships and the camaraderie um, that it sounds like it was born at least partly from the somewhat more relaxed mandate of these crews, as opposed to say a military mm-hmm. ship or or a strictly merchant vessel. Um, how were these individuals, captain and crew alike, regarded in their communities more broadly? You know, what 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 kind of cachet or the opposite was there for these people in broader society? In society, privateering was maybe seen as a as a, a very fair gentleman's occupation. That maybe you weren't that great and wanted to be in the military or the navy because it was tough in the navy and maybe you were flamboyant enough and had money and knew people that being a captain of a privateer was um quite quite a sexy thing to be when you got yeah home. i was gonna say it sounds quite sexy and i mean obviously these people who are responsible for 
providing their own ship, their own crew and equipment and captaining that ship are men of a certain means and have achieved a certain amount already. So these are not people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps here to do this. If you think that um, Sir Francis Drake, who is respected as, he was a privateer and he got knighted because well, yeah, he was one of Elizabeth's favourites, right? <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was bringing back, he was good at his job, so he became Sir Francis Drake, but he was a privateer. And the line is thin where you cross between a, being a privateer and being a pirate. So yeah. when you went out, in some ways, governments liked the idea of using privateers because... They paid the money, you went and did the job, they didn't have to buy your ship, they didn't have to pay the crew, they didn't have to arm them. Off you went and brought back all the, the wealth to the, the country. However... Yeah, it if, sounds like a win-win in so many yeah. ways. However, if the rules change and the government says, oh, we're not so keen on the privateering, because during the 17th and 18th centuries, if you were caught or charged with piracy, you were pretty much dealt with right away. You were hung. That was it. That's it. Piracy was seen as robbery on the seas, not good. Whereas privacy yeah. was okay. So it could get to the point, and it and it certainly did for uh, one famous Scottish um, privateer, is the infamous Captain William Kidd. That that's actually a, a great pivot point for us, Neil. I I'd love to sort of zero in on this privateer versus pirate question for a minute. So, I mean, in a nutshell, tell us the difference. Piracy is basically an act of boarding any vessel with the intent to commit theft or any other crime and with an intent or capacity to use force to further that act. That's what you're a pirate. So basically, you're a thief on the seas. Whereas a privateer, could do the same, but he's doing it because he's been given the blessing and a letter of mark or reprisal, as the French called it, um, to, to do this on behalf of their government. Now, a lot of pirates and all the famous pirates that we know, etc., went and attacked any ship. They'd attack ships of their own country because there was money involved in stealing, whereas privateers tended to go for enemy ships. If you were classed as a pirate, at some time you were going to get caught and, and, and dealt with. Yeah, so th that's really interesting. Um, and I, my thoughts immediately fly to, you know, this mystique around piracy that, I mean, it pervades popular culture from films, popular music, even, you know, to this great ride at Disney World, the Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, what, what do you make of that? Why, why isn't there a mystique of privateers? I think privateering was always needed because it, it was a way that a government could, especially because 17th and 18th century politically, lots of wars going on, long wars with different countries. And, that you know, privateering was one way to sort of fight your enemy without having this vast military uh, presence all the time. And it became sort of normal. I mean... There was many a famous uh, sailor who went privateering and then some went, actually ended up being pirates. And other than Henry Morgan, who did well out of piracy, uh, etc., most of them 
if they went the pirate route, we're going to end up being hung. Um, and normally, they would be hung from a yard arm on a ship or they would be sent back to Britain to execution dock in London where they'd be hung and then they would be covered in tar and they would make a metal cage and suspend the hung pirate or privateer in that cage and hung on a gibbet or a post um, over the water, you know, on, on the side of the river for every ship to see as a warning. It, it always amazes me, this, this medieval and early modern expertise in gruesome cautionary tales through through death in this country. I'm sitting in London right now. So that's what it's really, they seem to have perfected that art. And I'm wondering, did France and Spain, for example, front privateer fleets as well during this time? Oh, for sure. Yeah, France had a a, a privateer fleet. In fact, I was very fortunate um, back in 2000. 2008, that I uh, discovered a French privateer, La Marquis de Tourney, in the English Channel, 1744. And she she was uh, a French privateer that was operating uh, between France and Canada. So she would be out stopping English ships coming out of uh, Canada at the time. Um, and that ship was built as a French privateer. The Spanish had privateers. Um, Britain had privateers. America had one. One of your most famous privateers, of course, is John Paul Jones. Oh, right, of course. Who, Scottish, of course, um, who founded... <laughs> but of course. <laughs> ...the uh, American Navy. Um, so everybody was at it, and it was fairly, you know, there was rules... Remember, in 17th and 18th century, um, sea routes and sea lanes, they were the internet of the day. That, that is where um, all your information got from one country to another uh, via ships, all your goods, technology, um, weapons, trade, new discoveries, um, all went by sea, by the great sea routes and sea lanes. So, you know, people that had influence and governments and kings would would hire ships and maybe specific captains to go out and, and be a bit naughty and hopefully say, well, you know what, I know it's not right, but I'll give you a letter of mark and off you can go. So don't get caught, but if you get <laughs> caught, you have your letter of mark, so you might get away with it. Yeah. Or Don't hang. make it hard for me. Don't give me any trouble having to interpret this activity. Always the risk that you would be some incident would happen and you would be classed as a pirate and then, oops, the government would go, oh, we'll have to make an example of that. We told you to be a privateer, but you're a pirate, so we've got to deal with you, sorry. That, that's what kind of happened to the famous Captain William Kidd. Yeah, yeah, T- tell me a bit about that. From from what I understand, he, he definitely fell on the wrong side of a timing issue. <laughs> he was born in Dundee in Scotland in 1654. In fact, he was born about 12 miles away from where I live. Um, he, he was the son of a seaman, but um, his father died early in age, and he, he was brought up by the Dundee fraternity of masters and seamen who took on... Uh, 
seafaring children. And very much like today, uh, the seafarers look after their own. Uh, William decided that he wanted to follow his father's footsteps and become a ship's captain. And he did. And he did very good at it. And in fact, he was that good of it, he decided that he should go over to America. And he went over to America. And fortune has it, um, he married a widow, a very wealthy widow, from the Urt family, Sarah Cox Urt, a wealthy widow. So there he was, living in Wall Street and centre in New York and all these places, doing very well for himself. And during the wars, because we were at war, England was at war with France yet again, and he became a privateer, and he did very well. Um for England, attacking the French ships. And he was defending, also, he defended American trade routes as well to the West Indies. He got commissions by the English government to do expeditions against pirates. So they sent him and say, right, William, you're very good at this privateering lark. Um, we'd like you to go and chase some of these awful pirates who are uh, causing trouble with our, um, our ships. And we're losing lots of cargo and money about it. So here's some money. Off you go. Go and deal with the pirates. So he did very well. He obviously had a very, very wealthy wife now. And he was quite high up in society in New York. So when William Kidd rode back into town on his ships, he was quite the, the celeb uh, at the time. However, it kind of went a bit bad for him. Bad choices happened. And in 1696, with a crew of 150 men, he left New York on his famous vessel, the Adventure Galley, bound for the Indian Ocean. And his job, to capture a famous pirate, Robert Culliford, and then uh, catch some other pirates, do a bit of privateering, come back, all gone. However, the people that funded them didn't like him. Didn't like this uh, bit of a grumpy Scot that he was. In the time he was away, the rules changed regarding piracy and privateering. And it became a lot stricter, the rules of being a privateer. But Captain William Kidd was unlucky with the crew they had there. And they were quite a rebellious amount. So he had to be a more stern and disciplinary captain, which obviously wasn't liked on one little adventure. Let's say it would probably could have been termed that he might have con committed an act of piracy. Probably didn't. Anyway, it didn't go too well for him. He then had an altercation with one of the crew and he picked up a barrel and swung it at the crew member and it ended in his death. So there's a captain had killed somebody on a ship. So this is not looking good for him. So when word got back that this was going on, his investors didn't like him. And they said, while he was at sea and he didn't know, look, if you ever come across Captain Kidd while you're out in the Indian Ocean or somewhere like that, or he comes back here, arrest him. We're, he's a bit of a pirate. We're going to charge him. And, exactly, and that's exactly what happened. He sailed back. He got caught. He had all his paperwork and proof to say that really he wasn't a pirate and terrible things had happened, and that he did kill a crew member, but it wasn't intentional because it was done with a bucket, 
and you would think that's a, that's a, a very deadly weapon usually yeah, yeah <laughs> i mean i'm sorry i don't mean to laugh it's terrible somebody died but you know he was just so framed right i mean this yeah. is ridiculous you, you don't change the rules halfway into the game you you would expect if this is a gentleman's game you would expect a grandfather clause for one who was actually in the midst of a journey at the time that the change was instituted. But as you say, this was a purposeful dragnet, really. They they wanted to take this guy. They wanted him. So the, he ended up in execution dock for a year waiting. Now, this was unusual because usually with pirates, they were dealt fairly swiftly. If the Royal Navy got a hold of you, you'd be hung on the yard arm of the ship. Job done. However, he spent a lot of time in prison. He tried to defend um, this. He had paperwork. He did this. But they wouldn't listen. So, on the 23rd of May, 1701, the drums started and they took him out and he was hung, along with another, I think, three or four guys that had been accused of piracy. But that's not the end of the tale. When the executioner pulled the lever, the rope broke. So, there he was. He fell, thought this was his life flashing past them, only to land on the bottom, still alive. I think they might have taken that as a sign. Normally, in English law, the rope broke. That was divine intervention, and you weren't hung again. You got off, because you you had technically, legally been hung. He was hung, yeah. It just, the rope failed. The, the rope broke. However, he thought, well, maybe I'll get out of this one. But they didn't. They swiftly got another oh. rope and hung him. Until he was dead, they tarred him and fitted him in an iron cage, and he was hung uh, on a giblet at the mouth of the Thames River and left to rot. So his family or his wife in America didn't have any uh, body to to bury. So Captain William Kidd was very unlucky. Now, was he a pirate or was he a privateer? The jury's still out on that. And I'm involved with a group that we want to pardon the kid. He was hard done by. They didn't like the Scottish gentleman. Now, he may have been a bit grumpy and hard to get on with, but he did a good job. He was only trying to do what he'd said he's done, and he was unfairly treated by the English and everybody else. So we're trying to get a pardon for the kid. Yeah, tell us about that. So this started with a a friend of mine, uh, Noel Young, who was an editor and he lives in Boston, uh, America. And for some years, he's a Dundonian, like uh, Captain Kidd. And he's been looking at, at it with various other experts and historians and researchers. And they have come across evidence that shows that he wasn't, he was not guilty of piracy and that he should be pardoned. So in the last few years, we've been starting a campaign. And if you go to pardonthekid.com, you can find out all about amazing Captain Kid. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so anybody can just go online, www.pardonthekidkidd.com. Yeah, and you will find out about um, how he's pardoned. Um, it's early days, we're trying to get a lot of people on board to support the cause. Um, I support it because in some ways... <laughs> I might have been classed as a privateer. And like Captain Kidd, I was very fortunate in marrying an American woman called Sarah. Oh, I <laughs> Although love not that. from New York, from North Idaho. So 
All right. Well, um, I'm definitely going to go check out what is going on with the Pardon the Kid campaign. Uh, Brian Cox, the actor who's living in America now, and he's a Dundonian. He's from Dundee and he's behind it as well. So we're trying to get uh, people. We've found the direct descendant of Captain Kidd. He's actually an airline pilot. So he's quite keen to to pardon the kid as, kid as well. Are there any privateers out on the open seas today? I'm sure they might want to call themselves privateers, but no, um, pirates are, are back. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, it's it's really been very newsworthy lately. It's quite a deadly um, phenomenon, correct, in certain parts of the world. Could, could you talk to us a bit about this modern pirate industry? They still have groups of people out there who will attack ships to steal the ship, the cargo, and use um, force violence uh, to commit these acts. And they are. Piracy is, is serious. Uh, we're looking at 16, 20 billion a year is lost. 16 to 20 billion a year. That is major. That is That, that must dwarf the amount of booty taken in the privateering of the 17th and the 18th century, even adjusting for inflation and all of that. Wow. And what kind of what kind of product? I mean, what is generating this kind of revenue? What are they stealing? Ships are going past areas. Ships are carrying large cargoes. I mean, you get these large oil tankers. There's a lot of money, millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of pounds worth of oil on board these ships. And can they fence this oil? It's, it's so crazy to imagine them actually disposing of, sort of like trying to sell a Renoir or something. <laughs> the rules, how it works is that, and it's been fairly bad because everybody knows that down in Somalia, uh, that part of the world, the Horn of Africa, etc., is um, famous for the Somali pirates. In fact, they had that excellent movie with Tom Hanks, Captain right. Philip, uh, which was based on a true story uh, with that. So everybody kind of sees it and they see that side of thing. But it's not only in the there, it's in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa. It's in the Gulf of Mexico, believe it or not. And it's in the Southeast Asia, Singapore Straits, Malacca Straits, and the South China Seas. It's like all over, all over. Pretty much. Um, so how does how does this operate? Well, it's gone high tech in respect that gangs do it. Um, it's low tech in respect that in many places, it's fast boats with crews that go out and you know what? They're still using the same techniques that they used, that privateers and pirates was used, which would be that what you want to do is get on board the vessel very quickly, fast, take it over, minimum damage to get the maximum amount of it. In the good old days in the 17th and 18th century, the privateers were excellent at being able to steer, get close to a ship, get on the back of the ship, get on there and take it over without, they're not going to fire cannon and destroy the hull. They may fire cannon to cut the rigging. They're going to want to get on board that ship, get everybody sorted, killed or whatever, put to one side, take the cargo. Now, on the privateering days, they could spend a couple of days getting the cargo out 
And obviously, they took other cargo. If there was a good supply of beer on there, they're going to take the beer because they're not going yeah, to be right. They're not going to be welcome in port. So they would say, "Hey, these guys have got really good ropes. I'm having those ropes for us, and we'll take the cargo." So they spent a lot of time uh, making sure that they were what they got the maximum out of it. They may sail the ships back. They may take some of the crew. They may think, hey, your carpenter's really good. We could do with a new carpenter. Do you want to join us? So that went on. Modern piracy is much the same. Fast boats. Get on the ship. Get a grappling hook on the ship. Get on board that ship. Get up there and take it over. Now, today's pirates don't steal the cargo. What they do is they say, you're not going to get your ship back or your cargo until you pay a ransom. They're not going to take the oil. They're going to tell the captain of the ship, we want you to sail the ship to this bay, drop the anchor, inform your government and inform your shipping company, and we'll let the crew go. So today, the average that you could make you could get $120,000 for a 20-man crew right away. So, you know, there's money to be made in it. So it's like hijacking. It's a hijacking model. Yeah, it's, it's basically hijacking, yeah. And using the crews and then what happens is, you know, they do the deal, they let the crew go, let the ship go and the cargo go and they get paid. Now, for some countries, especially in Somalia, it was making lots of money. People were gainfully employed in this. It was making money for the for the country, uh, taking these ships in. Obviously, it starts to get a bit nasty when uh, bullets start to fly. Yeah, yeah. What what do we do in this day and age against modern pirates? It's not liked that you have weapons on board uh, merchant ships. So some companies will hire security military groups who will set up um, machine gun posts and if they need to would shoot at the engines on these boats probably with a, a good sniper rifle you get the distance you would hit the engine or the fuel tank and that would be the end of it um, or if it gets really nasty then obviously they're going to shoot pirates you know and hundreds of pirates are killed a year um, because the boats are blown up or they're injured uh, when the boats are alongside. Is there any sense that some of these modern pirates are actually privateers operating on behalf of, of rogue government agencies? <laughs> well, they probably like to think they are, because you would think that in some of these countries that Britain or America would say to the government, hey, you better stop your pirates. And maybe these governments say, well, actually, they're bringing in money. So <laughs> maybe they are privateers in a sense. I would like to think that mostly they're gangs, you know. That tends to be the way corrupt uh, gangs that are supported by the governments. If you don't have security on board, what ships do is you get yourself ready for going through these areas. Um, and that involves putting barbed wire around the... Wow. <laughs> so that if anybody tried to get up with a ladder or a grapple hoop to get on board, that stops them. Well, that's actually brilliant. That's so analog and simple and inexpensive, but probably really effective if the book, if the aim is just to stop them from boarding quickly. And if they get on the deck 
then when you go up the accommodation ladders, they have welded lock gates. So they're on the deck, but they can't get in to the accommodation or get themselves up to the bridge. Normally, it's well, I'm, I'm on ships that have been in areas that are under threat of pirates, so we have a safe area on the ship that if we are attacked, that's where you go to. Oh, like a safe... You have water hoses, high-pressure water hoses, and you will attempt to blow them off the side of the ship using high-powered water, water jets, same as you do for rioters. Obviously, if they've got guns, bullets flying around steel ships are not a good idea. So if you have got security and they do see guns, then it's a shootout, you know, <laughs> sadly. Um, but that's how that's how it goes. Uh, and, and the kind of work I do when we're recovering uh, valuables from shipwrecks, I'm probably a good one to take hostage. So <laughs> I can uh, only hope that I lock myself in my cabin and that the security team look after me or... I get sufficient training that I can at least put up some sort of resistance <laughs> to the Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, your your job sounds pretty exciting sometimes, at least. Uh, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the other part of your job, you know, uh, working as a maritime archaeologist and exploring these wrecks um, more from, from that standpoint. Well... Um, I've always been fascinated for the sea. Um, my father was at sea during World War II as a radio operator, merchant ships. My grandfather was in the Royal Navy uh, and my ancestors were all fisher people and some even sailed across to Boston in the first group of Scots that were kicked out of Scotland and became uh, merchants there. Um, I went away to sea when I was 17 um, and the Merchant Navy became a navigator on cargo ships, etc. Um, I'd always wanted to be a history teacher, but I thought, you know, this might be a bit boring and I want to see about the world first. So I ran away to sea like Captain Kidd did in <laughs> the Merchant Navy. Um, eventually, I had an opportunity that I could uh, do a degree in marine archaeology. And I thought, wow, this will be good. All that experience I've got on ships and oil rigs, and I was a commercial diver, I can now put towards uh, doing my passion, which is finding, researching, finding, and investigating shipwrecks. But I decided that I didn't want to do the diving anymore. Why not I use robots? So I Yeah, tell us about these amazing devices that, that you mentioned. They're basically ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, and... They're a robot that is flown from the, sh from the ship in a control van or control room. And there's a cable, an umbilical, that's attached to the robot. And it has arms and controls and lights and down you go. Bit much what you see when they go and investigate um, the Titanic uh, with robots, uh, etc. So I have to use that kind of technology is really the eyes and hands of an archaeologist. I can't go down to five miles the bottom of the seabed to look at a shipwreck. I have to use a robot. So the robot becomes my eyes, arms and claws and tooling become my hands so that I can investigate, look at and uh, work on shipwrecks. So it's a lot of fun. 
I mean, basically, I sit in a really nice room in a comfortable chair with the best underwater TV channel in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like a pretty cushy way to do maritime archaeology. Yeah. So I sit there and I guide um, the ROV pilots to look at this part of the shipwreck, look at that part of the shipwreck. Let's take photographs. Let's um, take samples. Let's do some survey. Let's do a lot of photography and let's investigate the wreck and then start an excavation if we're going to do an excavation work on it or go on to other shipwrecks. So it's so exciting because um, a bit like privateering, you never know what you're going to find. You never know what's going to happen at sea. Um, yeah. Finding out new things about shipwrecks. Um, one thing that I find fascinating is it's not usually... It's nice if you find gold and silver and all that stuff, you know, that's living the pirate's dream, I guess. But it's finding the everyday things. Yeah, well, and that's archaeology, right, in a nutshell. That's why we do it. And I'm finding things and thinking, wow, this, you know, I, I was on one ship and I'd found this small wooden carved what I call a canvas rubber, which is a piece of wood that looks like a chisel. And when you sew canvas, you rub the wood along the edge to make it easy for sewing, and it's called a canvas rubber. And I had found this object. Nobody knew what it was. I knew right away what it was. And I said, oh, gosh, that's a canvas rubber. <laughs> it had a hexagonal head, and it had been carved by a seaman. And he had put some other marks and on it and a little animal. And I thought, wow, who was this guy? He made this. He would have been dead pleased that he made this. Did he make this before he went to sea? Did he make it on the ship? Um, you know, so there was some significance. It wasn't just like a commercial bought thing. This was made by a person to do that job. The fascination about the shipwrecks is you never know what you're going to find. It's cool. I should probably get a real job. Um, oh, no. I think your job sounds both real and important, and you're clearly passionate about it. That's that's a winner. Well, it comes with, I mean, the bad side is I have to spend quite a lot of time away at sea, um, and days at sea are all the same. You know, every day at sea is the same. Um, <clears throat> you're working long shifts. Um, you're on that ship. You have to do the work as well because it costs a lot of money to to go and do archaeology in deep water. Um, you're not going to get much change out of $120,000 a day just to charter the ship with the appropriate ROV systems, cranes and subsea equipment. Um, that's before you've even found the, the ship or whatever. Uh, you've still got to deal with the various governments and licenses. Um, and I've been on some projects where um, other countries have accused me of not being an archaeologist, but being a, a being a pirate, which is quite exciting. Uh, luckily, I wasn't. <laughs> well, I I think there is a, there is a certain amount of misconception sometimes around you know what's a, an underwater archaeologist versus a treasure hunter. Yeah, so, I nosing around these wrecks, you know. So, um, I, I think your smoking gun is your story about this canvas rubber. <laughs> you know, that's that's not the words of a treasure hunter. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I generally tend to that if I get stopped by the police and they ask you what your occupation is, I'll say marine archaeologist. If I'm in a bar and someone says, what do you do for a living? I go, oh, I'm a treasure hunter. You know, you're going to get more. <laughs> well, you know where the sex is. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I don't usually bother. Um, 
I'm a qualified marine archaeologist. I know what I'm doing. I don't have to, I'm not forced to work for these companies, it's, although it is commercial. And I do the best archaeology and I try to get them to do the best archaeology that they can because I'm out on the ship actually doing it. Um, I do publish who will let me publish, but, you know, I'm having fun. It's great. I'm making new discoveries. I'm making a difference. I'm able to show that you can take the technology that's out there that's used in the oil industry and the seabed uh, industry and use it to do to look at shipwrecks in deep water. And who knows what's out in the deep oceans of the world? You're going to need the technology um, to go there and, and do that. So I'm quite happy that, and that I'll follow Captain William Kidd and hopefully not get accused of being a pirate and covered in tar and hung, but um, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and, and share um, my discoveries with people. And that, uh, that's the greatest thing that, that I enjoy the most is being able to, to say, um, to share my experiences and my discoveries with people that might not be able, or I've always wanted to be a marine archaeologist. I'd always say go for another ology other than archaeology, but... <laughs> I often tell people that too, but I don't really mean it, I have to say. And just listening to you talk about the stories that are just waiting to be excavated. I mean, it's the stories and the people behind the objects that always appeals to me in archaeology. And, you know, obviously it's the same whether you're excavating above ground or exploring an underwater wreck. Neil, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your discoveries and um, your passion about what you do today. Well, it's been a pleasure to, to be given the opportunity to share that with uh, the listeners. And I hope I can come back and tell you more tales from the, from the deep. Yeah. And in the meantime, free the kid. <laughs> yeah. hey, certainly. Let's pardon that kid. <laughs> Throughout history, there have been plenty of pursuits labeled criminal that once rubber-stamped by a government, are suddenly legitimized, despite being essentially unchanged. As we've explored in this episode, the life of a 17th or 18th century privateer promised unique thrills, renown, and riches to the sea captain cut from the right cloth for it. But those treasure hunters who sailed the murky line between privateering and piracy remain a cautionary tale for anyone relying on personal identity or even an official label when the proverbial or, in William Kidd's case, literal noose closes in. Proof that sometimes the rules change so quickly they're not worth more than, well, the piece of paper they're written on. That said, there's still time to throw in your vote to pardon the kid. And no paper this time. It's all online. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you when we return from our break. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at nrovark on Twitter. That's N-R-O-V-A-R-C-H. To learn more about the effort to pardon Captain William Kidd, visit www.pardoncaptainkidd.com. As always, we're on Twitter at Working OT Series, with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. You can support the show and gain access to loads of bonus content at patreon.com slash working overtime. Please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. This is our last episode of the season, but we'll be back after a short break with more historical jobs and explorations. 
Thanks for continuing to time travel with us. Until next time. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>